This is a Voice in the Wilderness podcast channel. The topic of this episode is going to be your vindication will be in heaven and nowhere else. But first a prayer. All that I am, all that I have, all that I do shall be consecrated to the service, honor, and glory and exaltation of the Immaculate Heart of Mary, the Sacred Heart of Jesus in the heavenly kingdom. In Jesus' name I pray, Immaculate Heart of Mary, please pray for us. Sacred Heart of Jesus, please pray for us. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Ghost, Amen. This is, in all sincerity, an encouragement. And For the sake of this episode, although, honestly speaking, <clears throat> the material that I do on my two podcasts, I've come to the realization they're done not just for the, the audience, they're also done for my benefit. Now, I do realize sometimes, of course, it doesn't come across that way. But that's the actual truth of the matter. I'm not just saying this stuff for you. I'm saying it as much for my benefit as for yours. And this is particularly the case today. There is a reason why in Paul's epistles to the various congregations that he had founded on his missionary journeys, why he likens the Catholic life to a sporting event. Or, for that matter, he's also likened it to military terms. In... In the Roman military at that time, because you have to remember, Paul was still a part of the Roman Empire. Um, there were three ways out of the Roman military. And, and by the way, back in those days, you didn't do a three-year term. You didn't do a four-year term. You didn't even do a 10-year term. Your term of service was 30 years. Think about that. 30 years. So, most Roman army veterans did not retire from the Roman military. If they lived long enough to retire, um, got out around my age. But there were three ways to leave the Roman military. You could be crippled. And back then, the Roman military didn't have a VA. It was up to your friends, your relatives, 
or the charity of your uh, neighbors to take care of you if you got crippled and couldn't work. Um, you could get kicked out of the Roman military. But you might as well have gotten killed if you got kicked out of the Roman military. Because in, in addition to scourging you within an inch of your life, you lost your Roman, uh, your Roman citizenship. You automatically became a second class citizen. And non-Roman citizens were slightly better off than the slaves, honestly. And the slaves were the lowest of the low. And that's why St. Paul in his epistles often uses the metaphor of the slave when he talks about the servants of Jesus Christ and his blessed mother. Because the slave in Roman culture was the lowest of the low. And then there was death. Now, unlike modern society, where we have nice, neat little graveyards, and, you know, everything is propagandized that, you know, these, these are our Elysian fields and blah, blah, blah. Let me, uh, for the uninitiated, I'm going to tell you. The Elysian fields, I believe, was a Greek poem written around the time of the Roman Empire that more or less said that the Greek and Roman heroes uh, in the military, of course, when they died, they went to the Elysian fields where everything was perfect and they were perfectly happy and they lived in joy and contentment. And basically, um, I can't speak for Europe, I'm not familiar, but in America, our Arlington Cemetery is... Uh, treated like the Elysian fields for the American military. Except unlike the Greeks who died for their false Roman gods, the American soldiers since the Revolutionary War have died for their false Masonic beliefs. But there is a reason that St. Paul when he was writing to his congregations um, used athletic and military terms. Just to satisfy myself, I'm going to add a little aside, and that is um, maybe a lot of people who listen to this have never heard this reference. But Margaret Thatcher back in the 80s compared the Europeans to the Greek civilization and the Americans to the Roman civilization. And I, I don't even want to hazard a guess to why Margaret Thatcher made this comparison but she wasn't far wrong because it was the Greek civilization that the Romans took from and they took the lofty high-minded ideals of the Greeks made it practical made it livable, and then spread it. Well, Americans are kind of like Romans in the sense that part of Roman culture, athletics and the military were a big part of their culture. Big part. And a lot of people don't know that one of the favorite Roman entertainments, at least in the later part of their empire was, was to go to the Colosseum, 
to watch well-trained fighters either fight to wound each other or in most cases to fight to the death. And if they weren't fighting actual trained gladiators, they were actually fighting wild beasts. And depending on the promoter, they would make it interesting. They would put restrictions on the particular gladiator, make it harder to kill either his human opponent or his wild beast opponent. And this was done in the open air. The Colosseum, you know, or no retractable roofs in ancient Rome. You're doing this in open air in front of males and females And it was a life or death struggle in that Colosseum. And the reason I'm bringing this up is, is because American football, and I, I made this remark long before I did this, uh, started my journey, that American football reminded me a lot of the gladiatorial games instead but instead of fighting to the death and I, I would have I, I would have to say that your average American football player a present era is much more skillfully uh, athletic than your average Roman gladiator no matter how good his fighting skills and it has been said that there were some gladiators that even Roman soldiers would hire to train them how to fight. They were that good at their job. But I've consumed enough of American football that you really got to admire these guys' athleticism. I have seen some of these guys do stuff that I, if I hadn't seen it for myself and somebody had explained it to me, I would have thought, they were pulling my leg. Anyhow. So. The reason I made the comparison. To the American society and culture of today. To the Roman culture of the time of Paul. You know. Anybody with a passing familiarity with the New Testament or, heck, even Roman history knows that the Roman culture of that era was pagan. And something that doesn't get talked about a lot and doesn't surprise me is that the Roman pagan culture wasn't insistent that there be one top religion. They weren't. They were willing to tolerate. They were willing to tolerate other, other smaller. Well, I won't say smaller. They, they kind of had one top religion with varying other religions underneath the top religion, which was kind of an umbrella for this for the other ones. And basically <clears throat> that religion was emperor worship. Because at the time of the death of Augustus Caesar, who was actually Julius Caesar's adopted son, he took on for himself the title of Augustus. And the title um, of God. So, because it's Roman society, because it's human beings we're talking about, there are probably different variations and gradations within that belief system. But basically... The core principle underneath of the emperor worship was that the emperor was literal God and what he said 
was a matter of life and death, meaning you either did what he said or you were put to death as a criminal. But the Roman pagan society of that time, talking about Paul's, uh, Paul's era, had all sorts, all sorts of I, I don't know how to put it. Because I, 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 I want to try to be as on point as I can. But because, and, and, and by the way, you know, the emperor worship and everything, that was more or less, it wasn't something unless you were a Roman soldier or a, a, a government official you didn't you didn't have to have a big ceremony and pledge your allegiance to the caesar now it is at least i, I i'm not sure about the u.s government bureaucrats but if you join the uh, u.s military you definitely take an oath of allegiance which you know you're taking it to the constitution the way I've learned the hard way is the, the oath you take to the Constitution, you're basically pledging your life and your service to whoever happens to be in office at that time. Sorry, all you based in red pill American right-wingers. That's the bottom line. You're not pledging allegiance to the Constitution. The Constitution means nothing. You're pledging your allegiance to whoever happens to be present to at that time. Anyhow, but pagan Roman society was very decadent. Now, I'm, I'm sure there's going to be some people because, and honestly, I wish I had come into the interest <clears throat> of Roman society earlier in my life. Because honestly, the history of the Roman Empire, and this is probably because I'm older now and I'm a little more mature, is actually more fascinating how it evolved. The different elements that worked within it than anything that ever came out of modern history. It really is. And there, there was a reason, or I should say there is a reason, I compared American today society, and I'm not necessarily leaving out Western Europe at all, but because I'm an American, I got to stick to what I know. And... Honestly speaking, we as Americans, we really do mirror the pagan Romans. We really do. But it was a really decadent society. It really was. They had a thing called the vomitorium. Where rich people would eat delicacies that your average Roman pleb or citizen would never get a shot at eating unless some rich guy tossed a scrap of that food in the pleb's lunch bucket. They would eat that till they were full. And when I say full, I'm not talking, you know, uh, two or three bites, you're full, you're done. No, they would eat it to the point of like bloatedness and then they would go to the vomitorium and they would stick a finger in their throat and puke it all up and to add to the de uh, decadency of this they would go back to the banquet table and do it again and keep doing this until they got tired of it 
um, their plays and their entertainments. I, I will say this much for Roman society. As far as I know, not every play that came out of Rome, or I shouldn't say not every, um, the majority of the plays, well, we'll never really know because there were obviously Rome ran for two or 3,000 years. Um, we'll really, we'll never know how many plays were actual garbage because a lot of those plays were lost over time. But honestly speaking, before I, before I go on with my thought, I want to make a slight adjustment. I would say the Greek plays, which the Roman plays were basically based off of, are probably more literary masterpieces than the Roman, uh, Roman plays. But what I'm saying is, If our society survives, oh, I don't know. Let's just say 200 years. If our society survives over 200 years, you could take, and my example would be Citizen Kane. Most people who like American cinema consider Citizen Kane to be the best American film ever made. I don't think in 200 years Citizen Kane's going to be remembered. At least in the case of the ancient Romans, some of their plays... Now granted, the majority of the people who study the ancient Roman plays are generally specialists, but we're talking, what, 2,000 years after the plays were written and at least the specialists are reading them? But their plays... You know, their plays were every bit as banal as anything you're going to see in Hollywood. You know, comic book movie part 15. They were as banal as all that. Their art was vulgar, just like ours. Hedonism and perverse sexuality was the order of the day. You know, um... Not many people know this, but in ancient Rome, there were men who dressed as women. And um, now I'm talking the later Roman Empire, because in the earlier Roman Empire, any man who was ever thought to be effeminate was killed on the spot. But we're talking earlier in the Roman Empire. Roman Empire, like I said, two or 3,000 years. But in the later degenerate stages of the Roman Empire, you had men who would literally dress as women and obviously do, you know, degeneracy. Um, I'm not so sure about the women, but it doesn't matter. You had all sorts of degeneracy in the ancient Roman Empire. And before the Roman Empire, not many people may be aware of this, even before the Roman Empire became the Roman Empire. In other words, when, when Rome was in its very first stages of its beginning, a tactic, and I don't know how else to put it, of a woman who had an unwanted baby they're, they have a word for it, and off the top of my head, I can't remember. But the, when I describe this, it should be quite, quite clear what I'm getting at. They would take their baby, and there was a particular place, I think it was on top of a mountain or something, and they would just leave the baby for the birds and the animals to kill. Now... That's anything, that's every bit as degenerate as partial birth abortion. I shouldn't even say degenerate. Brutal. Brutal. As partial birth abortion. 
you know, they, they, they exposed their babies to the elements. So it took the baby longer to die. If you, if you really want to boil it down to brass tacks, you leave a baby out in, in extreme temperatures, it takes longer for that baby to die than to stick a needle in the back of its skull. Not that I'm commending modern day culture, I'm not. But we share a lot of the pagan barbarity and degeneracy. What makes our society unique, however, is the fact that we have access to technology that if it were not being used by degenerate, brutal, Satanist masons would actually probably be, be because assuming the people that would be using the same technology hopefully would be more virtuous and more more upstanding, they would use this technology for the betterment of mankind instead of the selfishness of their own self-centered egos would help better, man, better mankind. But because we have access to this technology, we've taken ancient barbarities and uh, uh, degeneracy and we've just you know, you, we, we, we haven't like made degeneracy more degenerate. We haven't taken brutality and made it more brutality. But thanks to modern day technology, we've added our own particular spin to it. And before I move on to the main talk, the main topic of this discussion, I want to say that St. Paul wrote, in one of his epistles, and we're talking 2,000 years ago, that there is nothing new under the sun. This was 2,000 years ago. And at that time, I think civilization was running between four and 5,000 years. And it makes sense. You, you give humans four or 5,000 years and pretty much unlimited scope to do whatever they want to do, every indulgent, every barbarity, every degeneracy, and every virtue for that matter. And yes, there's, there, nothing is going to be new under the sun. And even the, what seems like a new idea, you know, it has later been proven you know, documentation or, or evidence, archaeological evidence has come up that said, oh, actually the uh, ancient Spaniards used to do the same thing or the ancient uh, Israelis used to do the same thing or the ancient Russians, the ancient uh, Iraqis, the Mesopotamians. Pick your culture, but there's nothing new under the sun. Now, why am I talking about how St. Paul in his epistles compared the Christian life to um, athletics and sports? Because if you take your religion as seriously as you should, it is literally like an athletic, uh, an athlete training, or it's like a combat soldier who's being trained for combat. Because, and I think one of the drawbacks to this metaphor that he uses is that, at least in the American sense, most people don't come within spitting distance of, no, of even comprehending what military service is like. 
And by the way, when I dog people out about this, I'm not saying that I was some sort of hardcore special operations soldier. You know, brutally speaking, I was a little better than a civilian in uniform. But your average citizen of today has no idea the physical the physical stamina, the mental stamina, and the physical courage it takes to be an actual combat, uh, combat soldier. Because not all combat soldiers actually go into combat. They're trained. They don't necessarily get to combat. And the same thing goes with athletics. Now, I'm going to be up front and say that I get really annoyed with these red-pilled, ultra-right-wing podcasters who sit and yammer on about how you need to lift weights, you need to lift weights, I'm sorry, you need to lift weights, you need to lose weight, and you need to get in shape. Now, there are certain right-wingers, and I'm thinking one in particular, they practice what they preach. They lose the weight, at least. Some cases they do work out. But a casual workout, you know, let's just say you go to the gym three or four times a week. And quite frankly, for a lot of modern societies, that's considered dedication. When St. Paul talks about athletic competitions... He's literally referring to, because one of the big athletic competitions that had been imported from Greece was the marathon. Now, my understanding of how the marathon worked was, was it was a race of between 50 to 100 miles. Part of it was running, part of it was swimming. There was a third aspect, and off the top of my head, I couldn't tell you what it was, but it was a mixture of three things over the course of 50 to 100 miles. Okay? Um, I'm not even sure what today's marathon, if it's, if it's 50 miles or if it's 100 miles, I'm 90% certain unless you're in the Olympics... It just involves running. Now, I'm not disparaging running. Running's not easy. And running a race to win it for over 50 to 100 miles, that, that's going to take a lot of work. You're, you're just not going to, uh, if you're 20 years old, wake up and say, yeah, I'm going to win the marathon today and go and do it. No, you have to train your body to the extreme conditions. Most people in modern society, and honestly speaking, even in Paul's day, your your average citizen was incapable of running a marathon. However, however, um, you also had boxing, you also had wrestling. These were physical, active people. These were not people sitting behind desks. These were not people sitting on a couch. Uh, watching a movie. These weren't people sitting um, at a a computer console playing a video game. Now, I know it's a big thing for, you know, uh, podcasters to sit and make fun of moderns for their sedentary lifestyle. That's not my point here. My point in bringing this up is, is that I, because American, uh, I'm sorry, Western society in general and American society in particular have been removed from the harder aspects of existence. Because back in the time that Paul wrote, your boxers and your wrestlers, these were not guys who... I mean, they might, have, they might have won prize money or whatever. But for the most part, these guys did it because they were proud of their 
for lack of a better term, I'm going to take, I'm going to say technique. Um, because there are different techniques in Greco-Roman wrestling. There are different techniques in boxing. And for that matter, racing too. And the ones who got really good at it added their own particular spin to it. So they were proud of that. And so when they did that, they weren't necessarily doing it for the prize money, but human beings, human beings, maybe some were. I'm just saying some of them were actually doing it because they loved their technique and they wanted to show it off to the rest of society. Hey, look what I did. Now, as usual with me, it takes me 35 minutes to get to where I'm going. The reason why Paul used athletic and military terms to describe the Christian life, and by the way, when I say the Christian, I mean Catholic, true Catholic life, is because if you are serious, and that's another thing too, if you want to be, at least in the U.S. sense, a elite U.S. Army combat soldier, and, you know, I'm talking, you know, Green Beret, Ranger, Delta, SEAL, or whatever, you have to have a firm commitment. Now, I... It's been 30, 40 years since I've been in the military, so I'm not quite sure if the standards, if they've gone up, if they've gone down. I'm not sure. So I can only speak from when I was in because one of the sergeants in my platoon, um, when I was in the U.S. military in the 80s, was trying to get into Delta. And that man was absolutely committed into getting into Delta Force. So he was constantly running. He was constantly at the range. He was constantly, um, you know, doing pull-ups, sit-ups, push-ups, running, lifting weights, just training, punishing his body because he was committed to being a Delta Force operator. And that's what, why, why Paul uses the military and the athletic metaphors before you can even run a marathon, before you can even wrestle, box, do whatever military thing you want to do. And no, moderns, I'm not talking about dropping a drone strike on somebody. I mean actually getting out and doing something. You have to be absolutely not just committed to the actual thing that you're committed to. But you also have to be committed to the philosophy that lies behind what you are doing. So in other words, if you are a true Catholic, you do not follow God because Roman Catholicism is the uh, most virtuous um, religions in existence, which if you do the research and you read it with an open mind, if you are sincere in, in, in trying to do that, you will find that it is true. If you compare Roman Catholicism to Buddhism, Hinduism, pick your ism, or anity, it is the toughest moral set of codes that, you, that you're going to try to uptake. But that's not why. I mean, it may be a starting reason why you become a Roman Catholic. Because you recognize a fault within yourself that, oh, hey, I'm kind of scuzzy, I need to clean up my act. You may start off that way, but that, that's, that's not why you devote your life to it. Now, I know that to anyone who's ever listened to any of my previous podcasts, I beat this horse to death. 
It's part and parcel of the message, so I don't know what to tell you. You... Once you realize that Roman Catholicism is the one true religion, and when I say Roman Catholicism, once again, I'm not talking you Vatican II sect people. I'm talking about pre-Vatican II Roman Catholicism. Once you realize that is the one true religion, and I'm just... Come with me. I, I'm not going to change who I am. So I'm just going to blurt this out. Once you realize the depths of the love that Jesus Christ and His Blessed Mother have for you, and I'm going to I'm going to stick to my own self because that's who I know. That's who I am. Once you come to that realization, your life is never going to be the same again. And when I say the realization, I mean a sincere and honest realization. And I want to add a further caveat here. It doesn't, you know, a lot of people get it twisted and think you need a deep, a deep and thorough and undergoing, under understanding of a particular concept or idea in order for it to make an impact on your life. You don't. That's why the spiritual journey is called the spiritual life. You know, ideally, if you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, You know, ideally, you, you grow deeper in the appreciation and in, 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 into the depths of what I call sublimity, love, wisdom, grace, charity. But I, 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 I don't care. I don't care what happens. Um, I, if, if after I do this broadcast, if I stop everything I'm doing and, and I just become even more degenerate than I've already been in the past, I don't care if that happens. I'm going to say right here, right now, present moment, once you realize, once you realize the depths of the love and not just the love, the forgiveness and the grace and the blessings that you have received from Jesus Christ and his blessed mother. And like I said, doesn't have to be deep. It could just be a dim understanding. Your life is never going to be the same if you have the proper attitude. I will add that caveat. You have to have the proper attitude. Now, why am I jumping on my soapbox? It's very simple. I'm not going to say that this is an American fault or conception. I would just say it's a modern day conception. That, yes, I, I beat the, the, the idea of America or I'm sorry, modern society treating God and devil and heaven and hell and um, morality like abstractions. But also part of, to be, to be a modern human being really, is to treat everything like an abstraction. And I'm going to talk about it, it, what I'm, or I'm going to get to what I'm talking about. When I say treat everything like an abstraction, and by the way, this is not everybody, you know, it's a generality. Take it for what it's worth. But most people, this includes married couples, 
This includes mothers and fathers. This includes sons and daughters. Treat their loved ones as an abstraction. When I say an abstraction is in a generalized way, you know, they, they love their wife, they love their husband, son, daughter, what have you, in a generalized way. But when it comes to making true sacrifices to help that other person Given the divorce rates in this country, you can't even live together until you die, which is a pretty big sacrifice in and of itself. So how can you say that you'd sacrifice, make it, you know, make anything remotely uh, as large as a sacrifice of staying, of staying married for life? That's what I'm talking about, abstractions. And it leads me, unfortunately, 45 minutes in to the point of this, uh, to this episode. Now, I realize to, to some of my listeners, I may sound like a fanatical, monomaniacal, half-witted, uh, barely... Um, Barely, what's the word, uh, eloquent idiot boy spouting off at the mouth. And if that is your attitude, you know, I, I can't throw no stones. I can't say my attitude in the past has been any better than anyone else's. But I just, honestly speaking... I wanted to remind you guys that I'm a human being too. I get hungry. I get cold. I get depressed. I, um, you know, um, trials and tribulations, um, honestly speaking, you know, it's not something that I'm very good at. My, my favorite thing to do is when trials and tribulations come, and they could be minor, is to gripe and moan about it because that's the way I've been. And while I'm on that topic, one of my biggest flaws as a human being, and I did a, believe I did an episode on this channel about it, is expecting the world to be your savior. That the white knight is going to run in and save you. That, um, that all the people who thought you were crazy, that you'll be vindicated before you die. And everybody, you know, it's like the movies. You know, everybody's going to hoist you up on the shoulders and yeah, 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 you were right all along, yeah. And I think that that's a particularly American thing because you can deny it all you want to. Hollywood, Hollywood is a powerful propaganda tool. I don't care what anyone says. I've consumed a lot of movies. That's some powerful propaganda there written by people who in a lot of cases knew what they were doing. But I fall into that trap. And I often forget, you know, that our vindication's not out here on earth. A lot of people who are sincere, true Catholics, devout, often die in obscurity. They get, they live in appalling circumstances, treated. No better than the crack whore in any major U.S. city. Or sex slave, for that matter. And they're not vindicated while on earth. And the ones who are really wise and the ones who really have endurance... 
they know implicitly not you know that their that their that their that their vindication is going to come into heaven so when things get to be too tough Going back to the uh, St. Paul metaphor, they keep pressing on. They keep pressing on. They don't stop. They don't retreat. And when I say to remind you that I'm a human being, This is not some self-pitying, pour me, pour me, pour me another drink. This is to remind you that I suffer from my own doubts. I suffer from my own past sins, either past or present. And sometimes, you know, certain sins... You may attempt to stop them, but the longer you wait to try to stop them, the harder it is to fight those sins. It just is. And I'm not going to speak for anyone else. I'm not. But for my case, fighting against my own natural inclinations... My own natural inclinations, my ways of thinking, my ways of doing things are the most difficult fight, never never mind the ordinary temptations that come up in day-to-day existence. Fighting against my own inclinations, in my case, I find to be harder than anything else. And um, you know, this is this is why some of you guys are going to be too young. But older parents, and when I say older parents, I'm not even talking about boomers. I'm talking about their parents were trained to dis- to to give their kids discipline. Because without discipline, when you grow up in life and when you come to the realization that, oh gosh, I'm 55 years old and I pretty much done what I want when I want to do it. And in order to break the cycle of my depravity, I actually have to get disciplined. Yeah, it, it makes it makes it seem like you're trying to climb uh, Mount Everest without a uh, oxygen rig. So, this serves two purposes. One is, well, like I said at the beginning of this episode, this is more or less for me. I mean, it's for you too. But it's definitely for me too. Because I have to remind myself on a daily basis, sometimes more than a daily basis, that I have a goal, I have a past, or I'm sorry, I have a goal, and um, I have, yes, I have a past that I need to overcome. And I've got to fight against myself. And because I'm full of frailties, sins, faults, bad habits, and a bunch of impatience, I sometimes forget. And I want to, I want to wallow in self-pity and despair. That's why I'm going back to St. Paul's metaphor about the athlete, the boxer, the wrestler, the, the soldier, whatever. Because if you're truly committed to something, 
and this is a long this is a long terms that I actually understand. You can't let I mean, even if the setback is constant, and sometimes it's gonna seem like that particular setback, you could set your watch by it. You know what time it's gonna come, when it you know it's gonna show up every day at this time and it's gonna happen. Okay, well, you keep trying till you overcome it. Now, in secular terms, I'll be honest, I don't think that that really works. However, in Christian terms, and, and, and I'm sorry, in, in true Catholic terms, you have the Lord Jesus, the Blessed Mother, and the kingdom of saints, not to mention the Holy Ghost and the Heavenly Father, who, if you put your, you know, if you turn it over to them, now that doesn't mean that you make a verbal statement, hey, I turn it over to you, you know, and leave it at that. No, you keep praying. You keep doing your devotions, whatever they may be. You know, you, you keep doing those things spiritual, which are, you know, and, and you might not even really have a solid conception if, if they're working or not. But if you know where you want to go and you know who's going to help you to get there, that you keep doing what you're doing because the end result and this is stated implicitly by St. Paul. If you stay on the course that you're on and with the Lord's blessing and his mother, blessing and grace, make it to the end, even if that end is martyrdom, the reward is going to be 200 to 500 times better than anything you've ever experienced on earth. And I'm probably underselling it, honestly. So anyway, I'm at 55. Um, so I'm going to have to cut this off. Thank you for listening. I hope you get something out of this. Um, I'm praying for you. Uh, I care about you as best as I can. Um, God bless you. Have a good day. Bye-bye.